welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep our history alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. In February of 2020, I was in Victoria, British Columbia, and had the opportunity to sit down for a chat with craftsman carpenter Roger Tinney as part of a workshop on intangible cultural heritage with the BC Heritage Branch. Originally from Prince Edward Island, Roger inherited some of his skill as a carpenter from his father and grandfather, and then expanded his knowledge of furniture making after moving to British Columbia. We start off here with Roger talking about the Tinney family and their origins. Uh, England, and I think originally Tin Smiths, which okay. became the name Tinney. He was an accountant, and uh, my mom was a registered nurse. And how, how long had the, has the Tinney family been in PEI? Long time, uh, 1860s. And were they always urban uh, people, or had they come in from the country at some point? Uh, came in from the country. They started out, um, uh, emigrated from England, I ended up in Quincy, Massachusetts, uh, stonemasons in Boston area. It was popular then to go from apparently Boston to PEI. It was prized for its farmland and it was cheap, uh, still is today. <laughs> and um, so they left Boston, went to PEI and became farmers um, and then eventually uh, moved away from farming into the city of Charlottetown. But my grandfather, um, and he was the one that came from Quincy, um, was pretty pretty ahead of his time in terms of education and what he could do. Um, he was, I think, the first person ever to have a master's degree in PEI in agriculture from McGill University. And that was a big deal back in the days when you know most people were lucky if they had a grade eight, eight education. And then he was just one of those characters that uh, he was uh, head of the YMCA, Chamber of Commerce, uh, could build anything. In the wintertime, he would make shoes for UNICEF, build a violin if he needed one, uh, <laughs> a boat. Uh, just, it was one of those guys that could just, whatever was required, he could do it, and it was always at the highest level. Could put an arse in a cat, at least. Yeah, exactly. Like say in Newfoundland. Yeah. yeah. And he was a master uh, calligrapher of, okay. of writing so every time uh, royalty would come to PEI he of course would meet the Queen or the Prince of Wales and they'd always plant a tree with a gold shovel and then he would write all the, the details on the shovel and it's still at the experimental farm in Charlottetown today. So what was your uh, introduction then to uh, making things to, to being a craft person? Well it was it was my grandfather, Ben Franklin, um, <laughs> and uh, my dad were both really good woodworkers, and uh, they had a, a really great woodworking shop in the house uh, where I grew up. But um, I actually was, wasn't really allowed to use the equipment because, you know, it was too valuable, too dangerous, and um, it was t typical PEI in the Maritimes. There's always stories that get embellished every time it gets told from person to person, so... The, the story was, was Frank Tinney's chisels and planes that he had in the basement, and they were so sharp, <laughs> they had to be kept in special cages. <laughs> <laughs> so they weren't really, but it made a great story. But they were very sharp. Yeah. yeah. Do, you, do you have an early memory of that, of that workshop? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would, um, 
that's of course where we build our go-karts and our tree houses and uh, things like that. So it was it was good fun. And just in those days, it was just down building you know trinkets with a little bit of supervision from you know the grandfather or father. So how old do you think you were when you started out <clears throat> making things like that? Grade um, five, I made a, a treasure chest for like a pirate's tre- treasure chest, um, uh, complete with velvet lining inside. <laughs> that was the first big project. And who uh, who helped you with that, or ha- who helped you design it? Or um, my grandfather, a little bit, I guess. It was, um, but it was sort of largely my own doing. Just trial and error. Found a log in the backyard, split it in half. Uh, augered out the the insides to make the chest Uh, and I remember my grandfather um, cut strips of copper for me which I could tack onto the top of the chest so it looked like a pirate's chest and then uh, I found a really beautiful little brass lock for the chest but it had no key so I was able to somehow in whatever your age you are in grade five um, (laughs) ten find a key that I was able to drill a hole in the end of the key so that it would fit in the lock and somehow it all worked. So I still have that today. <laughs> That's amazing, yeah. Yeah, no, and then, um, so of course, then there was this, for, for school, you had to do the show and tell, so I proudly brought my treasure chest. And uh, in those days, it was still uh, orphanages, and one of the kids from the orphanage wanted a treasure chest, so I built one for him as well. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm curious about the the shop. Can you describe it for me? Uh, yeah. Uh, every wall, every shelf was nuts, bolts, and washers, all meticulously labored, labeled. It was kind of like uh, going into a a pharmacy in in the old days. So everything had its place. Uh, metric was separate from imperial, although there wasn't much metric back in those days. And uh, <clears throat> my grandfather, <clears throat> because he was such a good carver. The tool couldn't just hang on the shelf. It had to have a special carved plinth <laughs> that it hung on. So every every tool, every chisel, every everything had its own little custom-made plinth uh, that it hung on. And so a lot of the kids would come just you know to look at the shop and ooh and ah. And of course, when you were a little kid, it it seemed much more grander and magical than it you know than it is today. But it was it was a pretty special spot. And does it still, is it still in the family? It, it isn't. Just recently we, uh, we had to sell the house. But um, the, the question my brother and I had when we went back was what to do with this magical shop and the workbench and all the, the stuff that went along with it. So we actually um, dismantled everything and took it out to the cottage and reassembled it in the barn at the cottage. Exactly the way it was. We had it all photographed in advance so we knew where every piece went. And so what, what is that like now when you walk into that space? What is that like for you? Oh, it's, um, it certainly brings back memories. And you think of, you know, the chisel you dropped and it landed on the concrete floor and broke the end off of it. <laughs> Things like that. Uh, but uh, all the projects that were made down there, and they, they made pretty much everything in the house. Um, they built their own house. And uh, so they built... Um, in those days, they built their own windows, their own furniture, all their own cabinets, and then uh, we, we built a boat down there, uh, water skis, um, go-karts, whatever was required, really. Where did you get interested specifically in furniture making? 
It's kind of an interesting question. I've, I've asked myself that because um, I didn't really do that when I was, was a kid. I was too young, partly. And in those days, um, what my dad and grandfather were building were just sort of utilitarian things, you know, uh, a planter box or a bench or something like that, but nothing sort of fancy, really. And it was always out of really simple woods, cheap as well, pine or spruce, uh, nothing exotic at all. And it wasn't actually until I moved out to the West Coast here and there was a, a lot more access to exotic woods and, uh, and more hardwoods. Everything back east was pretty much softwood, except for, you know, of course, there's some maple and oak. But um, I got hooked up with a group here that was um, the Victoria Woodworkers Guild. And uh, we started uh, a tree salvage program. So when the municipal park system if a tree blew down or had to get cut down, normally what they would do is just chip it into pieces or cut it up into small sections for firewood. And it just seemed tragic that uh, beautiful trees like Gary Oak or Arbutus or whatever, cedar, fir, uh, would end up, you know, for no purpose. So uh, the guild got formed and they made arrangements with all the park superintendents that if a tree came down, they would get a couple days notice. And um, we had a great big flatbed truck with a hydraulic arm on it and uh, we would go and get the parks crew to cut the tree generally into about eight foot sections and um, um, some of them were really large like the, the some of the sections of logs were five tons so it was a, it was a really big truck with a really big hydraulic arm and then we took it back to uh, another fellow's shop who had a portable mill and he would cut the wood into slabs and then we would all, you know, take a piece, depending on who helped out with the exercise. And um, so I, that was kind of just, I was kind of fascinated by that. And I liked the fact that the trees weren't ending up in a, in a fireplace, especially when some of them were, you know, three or 400 years old. Um, but the learning curve for me was I, I thought, this is great. I got this beautiful slab of fir or oak um, that was almost too heavy to transport. Uh, and um, the, the saws that I had were, you know, sort of home handyman woodworking saws. So you can't run a great big three-inch slab of oak through a, a home handyman saw. And, and furthermore, um, you can't make anything with it until it's dried. And um, it's, it's, it's one inch of thickness per year for drawing. So a three-inch piece of wood takes three years to dry before you can start making furniture out of it, unless uh, you put it into a kiln. Um, of course, I didn't have one, but then eventually one of the guild members made a kiln. So the wood would go in there and it would be dried much quicker, quicker and then we could start making furniture with it. But it was um, back to sort of the nub of your question as to how did I get into furniture making. It just kind of uh, came to me one day. I, I enjoy building things and uh, it almost seemed like uh, I just on the calendar of life, it, it got to a certain point where I thought, hmm, okay, I guess this is what I'm supposed to start building furniture. And, and I did. So I had a nice shop set up and uh, had access to great wood, which was free because it was salvaged, because it was quite expensive otherwise to go to the shop and buy wood, and um, started making furniture. And it was at first it was just, you know, things for myself. Um, and then some people would say, oh, can you make me this or that, or I've got a wedding, can you make me a wedding present, or special events of some sort, and uh, like, although 
this is bigger than Charlottetown, small town, the word gets around that, you know, my friend, but a friend of a friend knows how to make things. And so it was all sorts of stuff, chairs, tables, lamps, mirrors, benches. So I, I want to, I want to figure out when was it that you, that you moved here? Uh, 25 years ago. And, and, and did you get involved with the Woodworkers Guild immediately? Were you here for a while? Um, it was probably five years before I got hooked up with them. Yeah. And how did you, how did you hear about them? Yeah, I was just, I figured you were going to ask that. And I was just thinking myself, like trying to remember how I even found out about them. I think it went to, uh, I think I went to a craft show and, um, like a Christmas craft show. And there was some people selling all the usual stuff, like candles and little blacksmith objects. And there was um, a couple there with uh, some woodworking items on display. And I was fascinated how nicely finished they were. And, and, and in particular, the tactile feel of the wood. It, it felt almost like marble as opposed to wood. It was finished so perfectly. So I seem to recall talking to them. And they mentioned another person who I talked to. And... He was the one that uh, got the whole guild and tree recovery program going. So it, I guess it really evolved from that, just word of mouth and uh, just being sort of fascinated with the idea of taking a tree that's been cut down at the side of the road or is blown down. And then at the end of the day, you've got a beautiful piece of furniture. And uh, if done properly, it, it lasts for you know a couple hundred years or more. So I, from your description of growing up and your family history, it, it seems that you acquired some some basic skills <clears throat> fairly early, but then how did you how did you transition from just doing basic basic work into doing finer mm -hmm. work? Yeah, it's um it's a funny thing. I think there's a part of it is is in your DNA, grandfather, father, son. So I think a little bit of it just seemed to be coded into my system because I I didn't go and take any courses. Um, you know, I've obviously read some magazines, looked at some stuff on YouTube, um, got to know some of the guild members, and um, you know, I'd ask them, you know, oh, how did you do that? How did you get that taper? Um, how do you know what thickness to make such and such a thing? So it was a lot of word of mouth and listening and watching, but there was all, a lot of it too was just intuition. I just seemed to somehow know. And I'm, I don't mean that as a, in a bragging way. I'm not, like I say, I'm not some renowned master carpenter, but I seem to be able to make uh, pretty nice furniture that people like. And uh, some people buy it. Some people ask for special occasions, you know, for, for a wedding or sometimes, you know, for a funeral. So if you do, if you need to know how to do a specific... Thing, like a, a specific type of joint or a specific type of finish how do you if you, and you don't know how to do it what, what, what's your first step how do you how do you start to figure out where you're gonna go um, probably well these days probably YouTube <laughs> there's a lot of stuff on there it's in, in immense detail if they can you know anyone in the room could probably do a pretty good job of a table after watching a couple of YouTube episodes but um, um, once you get sort of a, a... No one here believes that. <laughs> <laughs> once, you, uh, once you get a, a basic skill set 
in, in anything, even though the complexity increases, it's the same sort of principles that get you to the finish line, I find. And um, the, a little bit of trial and error. Um, there's an old, a funny saying in our family, uh, we had relatives called the Millmans, and they were really stubborn, apparently. I never met them. But we, we always would just say we would just millman our way to the, to the end. <laughs> so, or or if, you, if, you, if you millman it long enough, you'll get there. <laughs> uh, I'm curious a little bit about the, uh, the Woodworkers Guild, the Victoria Woodworkers Guild. Um, can you describe that organization? Like how, is it, how is it set up, and who are the, who are the members? Yeah, um, it's <clears throat> it's um, it's a mix. Some some are professional woodworkers uh, that make their living at it. Um, some are just retired folks, and some are people like myself that just have an interest and uh, share ideas, get together now and then. Um, sometimes they'll have an event where maybe once or twice a year, everybody brings a piece that they've made that you know maybe they're proud of or something that was really unique out of a special wood and everyone gets to sort of critique each other's work in a fun way. Um, and it's, it's fairly informal, but it's, um, it's a great way to um, buy and sell tools if you want to, um, or learn new techniques um, and uh, find out who, who's doing what in a different way. Do they, do they do technique workshops or is it more just an informal learning process? Uh, more just informal. Um, pretty much everyone in the guild has a pretty good skill set, so it's more how can I just get to that next level. And if, if someone was, was starting out, where would you send them or what advice would you give them if someone wanted to start learning a bit more about uh, furniture making? Um, probably the best here, there's a community college called Camosun College, and they have a, they actually have a a, a formalized woodworking program. I think it's two years. Uh, but they also have, um, for the hobbyist, like an evening courses where you can go like a 10-week course, two nights a week sort of thing. So probably go there for starters. Yeah. Have so, you done any of those kinds of, uh, sort of smaller courses? No, I haven't. Uh, but they're really good. Uh, and the instructor's really talented. I got to know him quite well. Yeah. So who is that? Is that... Cam Russell, I think, is his last name. Yeah. Uh, but I haven't talked to him in a while. I, ever since I started at the Heritage Branch, I don't have time for woodworking anymore. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm too, too busy and too fatigued at the end of the day. <laughs> uh, so what's, what's a piece that, you, that you've made recently? Um, one that I made recently, which was kind of an interesting piece, was... Uh, a, a woman had um, come to me who had a, a a door from her cottage in the uh, Lake District in, I think, Muskoka in the cottage country in Ontario. And it was her from her family cottage, and uh, they sold the cottage, but she kept um, the door that she wanted a memento. So it was a cedar door um, that was painted robin's egg blue, and she had been lugging this thing around with her for about 15 years and she I think she one day thought she'd have a cottage and she'd put the door back on the front of the cottage or you know put it in a barn but then she didn't want it to be outside in the weather so uh, I was at her house one day and, and I, I said oh it's kind of a neat door what's that all about and she told me the story 
And then I, I said, well, I could, I could make something for you out of that door. And uh, doors are really, really good. Old wood doors, if you go to a salvage yard, um, they're usually fur. Uh, they're great for making furniture because doors are uh, uh, always made out of edge grain as opposed to flat grain, the way that the log is cut. And they're made with edge grain because then the door won't copper warp over time. <clears throat> so as you know, with an old traditional wood door, you've got the two vertical styles, which are usually about seven feet long, and then a header and a footer, and then some intermediate rails as well. And the doors are typically about two inches thick. So when you take the door and you cut it into its pieces, you've got just the most perfect stock to work with because it's perfectly straight, perfectly dried, edge grain, and perfectly square. So in this case, you just run the pieces through uh, your thickness planer and take a millimeter off each side to get rid of the blue paint. And it's just this perfect, in this case it was cedar, perfect cedar. So I made a cedar uh, bench out of the door, so that's in our living room now. What to you makes something that is fine carpentry as opposed to kind of rougher? Like how, how do you determine what is a good piece of furniture and what is a better piece of furniture? I mean, <coughs> sorry, when I'm looking at one or you're when looking, I'm building when one? When you're looking at one, yeah. Um, it's, well, the quality of the joints, it's kind of like stone masonry, like the, how tight the joints are and the mortar work. Uh, similar with, with woodworking, how tight the joints are and how perfectly they're cut. Um, and, um, and also the finish. That's the, that's the part of furniture making that people mostly get wrong is the finish. Um, because they, you've seen those funny, um, like Elvis wooden things with a clock in the corner and, and the picture, and it's got about 500 coats of clear lacquer on it, almost like a, an inch <laughs> thick. So it doesn't even look or feel like wood anymore. So that's often a common mistake with furniture making is people think, oh, if it's a table, I'll just put umpteen coats of clear lacquer on the top and build it all up. But then it, it has no tactile feel and it, you don't even know what the wood is, is about. Um, so you can tell pretty quickly by the finish whether the person um, is a good woodworker or whether they're struggling. What, what is your favorite finishing? I'm just gonna get a drink. Oh, sure. um, yeah. It's uh, an oil finish, and it's, um, I learned it from an old Danish fellow who was part of the Woodworkers Guild, and he um, concocted it himself, and it's a three-part formula. It's a one-part uh, boiled linseed oil, one-part tongue oil, and one-part um, uh, verathane. And the verathane gives it uh, waterproof, so if you put a wet glass on the table, it doesn't leave a stain. And the other twos are, are oil-based. And uh, so you, you make that concoction just in a jar. And it's at the end of it, it's sort of a consistency of, of maple syrup and about the same color, roughly, as well. So it's um, for me, that's the only finish I've ever used because it's, it's like this miraculous formula. No matter what the piece of wood is, whether it's light or dark, hard or soft, um, you put this oil on and it, it, it brings out the, all the inner colors and properties of the wood. And it's just a fantastic uh, finish uh, because if you go and buy a, a, a colored stain, it, it changes what the natural color of the wood is. 
<clears throat> now there's certain instances, of course, when you know you would want to do that, but it's actually better, I think, to to go with the natural color of the wood. And uh, <clears throat> once you put it on, um, it, it, not only is it a three-part formula, but it's a three-part part application for the furniture as well. So the first one, you just put it on with a, a rag, and you just completely coat the object that you've built and let it sit for about an hour, and then you wipe off all the excess and let it dry overnight. And when you do that, the little microfiber hairs in the wood stand up. So the next day when you come down to touch your piece of furniture, it, it feels a little bit on the fuzzy side. Um, so you have to put the application on a second time. And when you put it on a second time, you, you what's called wet sanding. So you completely soak the top of it in, in this oil. And then you actually start sanding over the oil. And um, it creates a, a microscopic slurry that fills all the pores in the wood. And um, you have to get down just at the right angle so you get the light so that you can make sure there's no wet spots left. Uh, so that's, a, that's the second application, usually with uh, 300 grit sandpaper. And then you do the same process again a third time, but with 600 grit sandpaper. And 600 grit sandpaper has almost no grit at all. It just feels like a, a sheet of paper almost. And then that gives you this amazing buttery, marbly texture finish that's just, you sort of think, wow, is that actually wood? And, you know, how did you finish that? And that, that's what you're looking for in a finished product. <clears throat> and, it, and it leaves all the natural colors as, as they would normally be. So this recipe that you have inherited from this, this gentleman, do you make it exactly as he made it, or do you have you tweaked it a bit, or no, just exact, yeah, yeah three part, yeah. <clears throat> and it seems it hasn't hasn't let me down yet, and uh, <laughs> it, it just works so well that uh, I just haven't had a desire to try anything else. Uh, in terms of your design, so if you're designing a piece of furniture like this bench that you made, for example, um. Uh, what are your designs based upon? Do you have a style that you like? Um, I, I get influenced a lot by uh, industrial design, actually. Um, uh, things that aren't even made out of wood, um, like uh, old mix masters from the 1950s, um, or the, the fins on the back of a Cadillac car. Um, I, I find industrial design really inspiring for that sort of stuff and I try and pick up those pieces and integrate them into the the wood. And yet you're saying that when you're using your finishes for example you're very true to tradition. You're, right. you're using those traditional skills but you like the more modern yeah. industrial aesthetic. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And yeah. how do the, how do those two things mesh together in your mind? Um, well it 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 works well. It's uh, you know you go back to the George Jetson cartoons and the little spaceship and all that sort of stuff. So there's there's elements like that that you can incorporate into uh, a piece of furniture that makes it a little more interesting or a bit more whimsical. It's uh, it's it's fairly easy to make you know a traditional table. You know a flat top, tapered legs, um, and you know and a little drawer for your keepsakes in the in the middle. But um, and Again, anyone with some reasonable skill can do that, but it's it's how can you uh, introduce some some things to make it 
special or unique. Uh, so, because everything, at least that I make, is a one-off. It's, it's. Um, I don't copy a design. Um, it's, 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 it's a one piece. And uh, so, in terms of um, doing inlay or um, some kind of a little whimsical thing uh, on the side that you know you don't you don't immediately notice it until actually you sort of look down and think oh there's 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 a little um, mouse or a flower at the base of that that I never saw and just to try and take elements like that and and, and introduce something so it's it's a little more special. Yeah, I love this idea of whimsy. You know that, mm -hmm. that this is a, a, a an aesthetic choice that you're making to introduce. When when you see other <clears throat> works, like what do you do? You look for that kind of thing in mm -hmm. other other makers' <clears throat> furniture. Yeah, for sure. Um, <clears throat> some of the furniture you see is just you know it's really nice and beautifully made and nicely finished, but it's kind of like eh, you know just a table. And uh, but you know you want something that's that's kind of different or unique uh, that, uh, you know, that you think, wow, that's really clever or cool, or I'll remember that for a long time. Um, and try and, I always try and introduce some of that into every piece so that it's not just, you know, a regular piece of furniture. And, um, the, and you can achieve that with the inlays and, and uh, depending on the type of wood you're using, you have to give some thought to what inlay you're going to use. So, uh, for example, maple, which is sort of a, a lightish caramel color wood, um, works really wood with a inlay uh, the wood called purple heart, uh, an African exotic wood, and it's literally purple, which is where the name comes. So that that purple and sort of uh, caramel color works really well together, and they age well together also. Whereas if you um, use uh, say, uh, an inlay of an African wood called paduk, which is, when it's cut, it's br actually bright orange. Um, but over time, it turns chocolate brown. So I, I made the mistake one time of doing <laughs> a paduk inlay of an oak bench. And a couple of years later, I went back and thought, where the hell did the inlay go? <laughs> it basically had turned the color of, of dark brown oak. Right, yeah. So, didn't make that mistake a second time because <laughs> you go to all the effort to do the inlay and then can't see it after a while. Do you uh, do you draw out pieces before you create them, or is it a mental map that you're working from? Um, both. Sometimes sketch it out, but but never in full detail because I like a little little bit of a journey as I go. And sometimes it's just uh, free form, just just start building. Well, thank you very much. Our interview, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. <laughs>been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.